Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is the truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of God. Well, as we continue in our study in the Gospel of John and in what now is increasingly clearly our walk towards Good Friday, uh, towards the cross and towards Easter Sunday, um, let's bow our heads and hearts and pray once more. Father in heaven, um, we are grateful for your word and we're grateful um, that in the gospel that we have come to, or in the section of the gospel that we've come to, um, we are having your glory put before us. Uh, We are drawing near to the cross, uh, the thing that Jesus was very clear would be the point at which he would be lifted up and would draw people to himself in which you would be glorified. And our prayer uh, in this next half hour, hour that we're together Um, is simply for that. Jesus, we want you to be lifted up. We want you to be made glorious. We want to see your beauty. Um, We know uh, from the Old Testament, um, and the New for that matter, that to, 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 to ask to see your glory and your beauty is not something that we do lightly. Um, it's not something that we can take for granted that we would be able to stand, uh, or sustain. Uh, and we are amazed Jesus, of how you have emptied yourself, how you have humbled yourself uh, to dwell among us, um, as was prayed earlier uh, today in this service, that, that you, you dwelt among us um, and that we saw you uh, full of grace and truth. And so this afternoon, as we are considering your grace and considering the very question of what is truth, um, we thank you, uh, that, you have, that you have done this. Um, Jesus, you said that if you were lifted up, you would draw all people to yourselves. So we pray that you would draw us to you. 
that you would strengthen our faith, um, that you would kindle faith uh, where it lies dormant or where it has never been, um, that you would give us uh, hearts uh, attuned to your goodness and to your beauty um, that would flow out into um, actions and words uh, of blessing to one another, uh, to our friends and neighbors, uh, and above all towards you, that we would bless you, that we would praise you, that your name would be on our lips. Father, would you do this great work uh, in us uh, as we gather under your word this afternoon. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, later in the service, before we come to the table, we're going to recite the Nicene Creed together. And every time that we recite the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, which is a shorter version of largely the same thing, we always mention this guy, Pontius Pilate, right? And it's kind of an amazing thing, you stop and think about it, um, that this one guy, this one Roman governor of this one backwater region, you understand, there were a lot of people like this, right, over the hundreds of years of the Roman Empire. Um, they oversaw a lot of different backwater regions. There were a lot of different governors, and we have never heard of most of them. Um, but we've heard of this one. We've heard of Pontius Pilate, uh, because our creed uh, reminds us uh, that Jesus, uh, that God works uh, in history, uh, works in actual historical events with actual historical people. Um, and that Jesus, in the course of his life, um, suffered uh, under Pontius Pilate. Um, but not only that he suffered uh, under, under Pontius Pilate, um, today we get to read about this conversation um, that Pilate has with him. And it's kind of amazing. When I, when I looked at this passage, um, I looked at these questions that Pilate asks um, over the course of this text, and I realized um, that these three questions that he asks are actually really good questions for us. Um, really good questions for us to focus our minds uh, around uh, this afternoon. And so that's what I want to take us through as we look at this text. There's three questions that Pilate asks. He asks, what accusation do you bring against this man? Uh, the second question he asks is, are you the king? And thirdly, what is truth? So let's take a look uh, at each of these questions uh, as we go through. So before we get there, just to, just to summarize what it is that, that happened. So um, Jesus has now been arrested. Uh, he has been taken uh, before the high priest uh, among, among the Jews. Um, and now it says that they are taking him from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, to the governor's headquarters, to Pilate, right? So as I say, Pilate is a Roman uh, governor, um, as Rome, you know, governed the different regions um, uh, under, under its empire, um, you know, a lot of these regions were pretty far flung. There's a lot of distance between Rome and, and Jerusalem. Um, and so they would install people, you know, to, to, main, to maintain order, to keep the peace. Um, and, and Pilate has been appointed uh, to this post uh, here in Jerusalem. Um, we know that he was appointed by the emperor Tiberius, um, and he held this post for about 11 years, and we're kind of right in the middle of his, um, of his time. Um, 
It says that they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, um, but could eat the Passover. Um, this is a good example of uh, when we talk about John and his use of irony, right? There's a lot of places where John uh, in his gospel likes to use irony. So last week, we were reminded that Caiaphas, the high priest, had said it would be expedient for one person to die instead of the whole people, right? Um, and there John is really explicit. He, he did not understand just what he was saying in saying that it would be expedient for Jesus to die instead of the people. Had no idea the meaning of his own words. Um, this would be another good example of, of a different kind of irony. They, they don't want to go into the dwelling place of a Gentile because they don't want to be defiled, because they want to eat the Passover. But think about what it is that they're doing. Think about who it is that they're handing over. Right? This, is, this is the one who, way back at the beginning of John's gospel, John saw him passing by and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, they they, they want to be able to eat this meal, this Passover meal, with a lamb that would remind them of the time way back in Egypt when lambs died instead of the people, right? And yet here they are handing over the lamb of God, the one that all those Passover lambs have been pointing at this whole time. Um, it's a great irony uh, that in order... You know, they, they're, they're, they're insisting not on being defiled before eating this meal uh, in, in the very act of betraying the one that it, that it points at. Um, they're doing this, they're bringing him to Pilate because uh, they are not allowed uh, to put people to death. Um, they're not allowed to carry out executions. Now, you might say, well, but what about times when there are there are various stonings. You know, Stephen, for instance, in the book of Acts is, is stoned to death. Um, it is likely that what those are is just the simple fact that in an empire the size of Rome, um, you wouldn't always be able to maintain perfect order. Um, people would sometimes do things that they weren't allowed to do. And so some of those stonings are probably exceptions. But by the letter of the law, we do know um, they're not supposed to be able to put anyone to death. They have to get Rome uh, to do that. Um, and so when, when Pilate asks them, so what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, we know what they've accused him of amongst themselves, right? Like with the high priest and throughout the gospel, they're accusing him of blasphemy. Um, he's been making himself equal with God. Um, he's referred to God as his father. He said the father and I are one. And we know that that's made them very angry. Problem is, if they go and tell Pilate, well, this man is a blasphemer, right? He's made himself equal with God. Pilate is going to say, I don't care about that. That's a, that's a little religious matter, right? You, you deal with that yourself. That is not a capital crime as far as Rome is concerned. Um, and so when, they ask, when, when he asks them, what accusation do you bring against this man? They basically just dodge the question, right? They give him a pretty much a non-answer. Um, they say, if this man were not doing evil, uh, we would not have delivered him over to you. Um, probably it's the case that Pilate's already been tipped off uh, to Jesus' claim or to the accusation uh, that Jesus has claimed to be king of the Jews um, because he seems to know that as soon as the conversation starts. Um, but they're very, they're very coy. 
uh, in not making that, that accusation directly. Um, John tells us, John tells us this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In other words, the fact that Jesus is handed over to Rome in order to be put to death means that he's not going to be executed by stoning, you know, um, by an execution, you know, outside of the law uh, where he ends up buried under a heap of stones. Um, he's going to be cru- he's going to be crucified. Um, he's going to be put to death the way he said he would be, lifted up uh, for all to see. As I said, these questions that Pilate asks, um, I think are good ones to be put to us. Um, it's kind of an amazing thing sometimes in Scripture when the, the unlikeliest of people ask the best questions. Um, and get us uh, thinking, um, asking ourselves new questions that we haven't asked before. Um, This first question, what accusation do you bring against this man? Um, Just briefly on this one, just remember, accusation is a theme overriding the entire Bible, um, overriding the very nature of sin and our relationship to God. Um, if we think back to what it was that was happening in the garden, um, the serpent was able to get Adam and Eve to focus not on what God had provided for them, um, but on this one thing that he had withheld, right? And had gotten them, th- gotten, been able to get them thinking, God is holding out on you. Um, God is being stingy with you. God is not going to care for you. He's not going to look after you. Um, And a little lie steals into their hearts, right, and gets them to think not in terms of God's provision and not in terms of gratitude, but in terms of accusation, in terms of accusing God of being less powerful, less loving, um, less caring as their Heavenly Father than he really is. When Pilate asked the question, what accusation do you bring against this man? That's, that's a good question for us to stop and ask ourselves. What accusations have we brought against God this week? Or in the last hour? Or in the last five minutes? Um, where are the places that we are tempted not to believe um, that God is able to take care of us? Or that he wants to? Where are the places that we're tempted to believe that he's not paying attention, that he has abandoned our cause, um, that he's holding back uh, on us? Um, The devil doesn't really come up with anything new. He's not all that original in how he works, but he is very effective because this temptation to accuse uh, just works again and again and again, and it's, it's good. Uh, to be stopped and to be asked, what accusation do we bring against God? And then on the flip side, as we look in the rest of this chapter, what do we need to be reminded of from his word to quell those accusations? How do we need to be reminded that, no, God really is who he says he is. He really is faithful. 
Uh, he really is uh, worthy of our, of our worship and not of our accusations. The second question that Jesus asked, or sorry, that Pilate asks, the second question that Pilate asks, usually is Jesus asking the questions, isn't it? But the second question that Pilate asks is, are you the king? Right, so, so here at this point, we start getting this back and forth, right? Because the, the Jews won't go into Pilate's headquarters, there has to be kind of this shuttle thing that goes back and forth, um, you know, with Pilate questioning Jesus in his chambers and then him coming back out. Um, it's great for sort of increasing the dramatic tension uh, in the story. Um, it says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Um, as though to give Pilate a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Like maybe you're actually wondering who I am. Um, maybe there's actually space to have a conversation here. Um, Pilate puts any doubt to rest. Um, he answers fairly angrily, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So clearly he's only asking this question um, because somehow or another that's the charge that's been given to him. That's, that's why he's having to take time in the middle of the night um, to deal with this um, itinerant rabbi uh, that, the, uh, that the religious rulers have, have handed over, over to him. So he's asking, so are you the king of the Jews or not? Um, Jesus answers in two different ways. He says, my kingdom is, is not of this world. And then when Pilate says to him, so you are a king, it's a little bit puzzling the, the way that Jesus answered. He says, you say that I am a king. Um, he's definitely saying yes there. Um, but this, you say that I am a king, it's a little bit hard to translate. Um, one person I, I, I read translated this as saying, well, king is your word. King is the word that you're using. It's not the word that I've used. Um, but it might be better to translate this for Jesus to say, yeah, I'm a king. But when you use that word, it doesn't mean quite what you think it means. Um, and this will be the second question for us. Um, is Jesus the king? But if so, what kind of a king is he? What is he king over? Uh, king over what? The kingdom of God is actually not as big a theme in the Gospel of John as it is in some of the other Gospels. Um, like in Matthew, it's a, it's a huge deal, right? In Matthew, Jesus' whole mission statement is the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the Gospel. Um, here, when he tells Pilate why he's come, what he says is, for this purpose I was born, for this person I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Um, in the Gospel of John, Jesus um, is a king who draws people to himself by means of the truth, by means of the light. And we've read before that as the light comes into the world, as the truth comes into the world, it draws to itself those who are of the light, those who are of the truth, and repels those who aren't, right? Making this, making this distinction. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm a king, but not 
how you understand it. I'm not a king alongside of, of other kings. John has said he's the incarnate word uh, through whom and by whom all things were made. Um, in other words, I think the way to understand this is what he's saying to Pilate is at one and the same time, I'm a king in a way that doesn't pose any threat to you whatsoever. And at the same time, I'm a king in a way that threatens absolutely everything. Pull it all apart. He's a king in a way that doesn't pose any threat to Rome whatsoever because what does Rome want? What does Rome have? Right? Rome has power. Rome has territory. Rome has land. Um, Rome uh, is the imperial power because uh, they've become the most proficient uh, in using violence and warfare, right? So there's a rebellion, they can put it down. Uh, there's territory they want, they can take it. There's territory that's attacked, they can defend it, right? That is not what Jesus is doing, right? Jesus is not making any attempt whatsoever to displace Rome from any of its territory. Um, he's not there to meet Rome's violence with greater violence. If he were, as he says to Pilate, he says, look, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, right? We even saw a couple weeks ago when they come out to arrest Jesus, Peter draws his sword and Jesus says, put that away, right? That's not what we're doing. Um, that is not the kind of king that I am. Um, Jesus is not one who, alongside of all of the other violent kingdoms and empires of the world, he's going to come along and be more violent and more powerful and, and, push, them, and push them out of the way. Um, on the other hand, he is a king who threatens everything that Rome stands for because he's not a king who wins by means of violence. He's a king who defeats violence itself, right? He's not a king who can incur more death than the next empire next to him. Um, he's one who defeats death by going through death by submitting to death. Um, and if he's that kind of king, then he's rendering the violence of Rome. You know, its, its power as being the most efficient, lethal death machine that the world has ever seen. He's rendering that completely irrelevant. He's taking the rug right out from under, under Rome's feet. It's a little bit like that, you know, that, that vision that Daniel has in, in Daniel chapter 2. Um, so this is in Daniel chapter 2. Um, this is after Daniel and his friends have been brought from Israel into exile by, by, by Babylon. Um, and the emperor of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream, right? And Daniel can not only, he can tell him what the dream is and he can interpret it. And he says, okay, so in the dream there was this statue, right? Statue had a head of gold, chest of silver, torso of bronze. You kind of work your way down its body until it's got, I think, feet of clay, you know, at the bottom. And Daniel says, this statue represents a whole series of kingdoms, right? One after the other, right? And you're the gold one, right? Great job. You're the best. But you are going to be replaced. You're going to be replaced by something not quite as glorious as you. That's, that's the silver. And then that'll be replaced, right? There's this whole series of kingdoms. But when the kingdom of God shows up in this dream, it doesn't show up as part of the statue, 
right? It's not like Daniel says, oh, I forgot, there's this one other part of the statue. It had a crown made of platinum, right? Even better. Um, no, the kingdom of God shows up as a stone that comes out of nowhere and smashes the whole thing and becomes the mountain of God. Um, as though to say, the kingdom of God is not a part of this statue. The kingdom of God is the ground that the statue is standing on to the extent that it can stand. Um, this is the kind of kingdom um, that, Jesus, that Jesus is bringing. It's not, a, it's not a kingdom that's going to defeat violence by violence. Um, it's going to render violence irrelevant. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus' kingdom has nothing to do with the world, right? It doesn't mean that it doesn't threaten the world at all. Um, in some ways, it's the greatest threat uh, of all. It has the capacity to, capacity to tear it down uh, from the inside. The question that I would ask you then, how do you understand Jesus to be the king? One of, our, one of our catechisms says that the way that Jesus is our king is that he rules over and defeats all of our enemies uh, and also us uh, to the extent that we would push against him, to the extent that we would run in the opposite direction, as is our, as is our tendency. Um, Jesus rules over all of the powers that threaten us, including the weakness of our own flesh. What are the powers that are facing you? What are the, the things that are keeping you up at night? Um, what are the things that it's hard to stop thinking about when you come into this worship service? Or what are the powers, your own powers, on which you're depending to save you? Um, you know, when Peter drew that sword, that was a very natural human instinct. You know, here comes violence, we meet it with violence. Um, in our lives, as we meet challenges in the workplace, with our family, um, our natural human instinct is to look to ourselves. Say, what do I have? What, what strengths and what powers do I have to bring against the powers of the world uh, to defeat them? There is good news in the fact that Jesus' kingdom is not the kind of kingdom that defeats power with power. Um, there is good news in the message that it's not ultimately down to our own powers to save us uh, in the world. That's not what they were for in the first place. What are they for? To follow Jesus in the same purpose that he says that he has here, to bear witness to the one in whom there is salvation. Jesus says he has come into the world for this purpose, to bear witness to the truth. And then Pilate asks this last question. Um, scholars have puzzled over this for a long time. Is he really asking this? Is this just, is he just being sarcastic? Does he storm out of the room as soon as he spits it out? What is truth? Um, or does he really want to know? He obviously doesn't stay around uh, for the answer. But he asked this question, what is truth? And that is another good question uh, for us to ask ourselves. Um, in Pilate's world, 
If he's really asking this, you know, Pilate could be saying, look, I don't care what the truth is. Um, I'm in charge here. This is a world governed by power. It doesn't matter what's true. True is what I say is true. Um, in Pilate's world, truth is going to come down to power. And if you have enough power, you can force the truth uh, to yield to your whims. Um, most of us hope that the truth isn't like that, right? We want the truth not to be something that's just subject to the whims of power so that who's ever in charge gets to say what's true. But the alternative is that truth is really something objective, something outside the whims of power. Um, but in that case, it's going to be something hard. It's going to be something unyielding. It's going to be something which, if we run afoul of it, there's no mercy. There's no change. There's no second chances. The dilemma that we face with truth is, do we want truth to be something that yields to our influence, but then it would all just be power? Or do we want it to just be what it is, but then it will never yield in its judgment of us? Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this really well. Uh, this is this, this speech that he gave at, at Harvard University. Um, he said, you know, it would be really easy if there were just evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary to just separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The only way that we could somehow have it both ways, the only way that truth could be something objective and real and unchanging, and yet for truth to yield would be if truth isn't a what at all. But if there's actually a different question, which is who? Who is truth? Jesus has already given us that answer, right? He's already said, I am the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. And in the death that he's going to die, that he's already spoken of, the death by which he's going to be lifted up, the death by which he's finally going to glorify his father, he's going to reveal the truth about what kind of God this is. Um, the truth about why this is the kind of God that's worthy of trust and not of accusations. Because at the same time, the cross is going to reveal the truth about sin. It's going to show sin really is that bad. Um, sin really is that serious. Sin really does need to be dealt with and dealt with finally. But at the same time, God really is this merciful, really is this good, um, really is this capacious um, in opening a way uh, for all people to come to him. When we look at the cross, we see simultaneously the weight of sin and the glory of God's grace uh, and his mercy toward us. The last words of, of this passage show how when truth is simply a matter of power, when truth is just 
bendable to whatever you want it to be for convenience. It always leads to a perversion of justice, right? Like the last thing that happens in this, um, in this, in this passage is that Pilate comes out and tells the Jews, I find no guilt in him. He says, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And he uses that phrase that they've presumably given to him. They cry out, being careful not to use that phrase, not this man, but Barabbas, who we're told was a robber. And the other Gospels say that he wasn't just a robber, but a murderer and one who had taken part in insurrection. So again, it's irony, right? If, if anyone deserved to be put to death by Rome, it would have been Barabbas, but he's the one who's being released because it's more convenient. It's more convenient to pretend that this is the truth and so there's a perversion of justice. But, but in the cross, this is the amazing thing, is that in the cross, God is able to be faithful to his identity, to be a God who is both full of steadfast love and mercy, and at the same time, one who is not going to leave sin unpunished, one who is not going to leave justice undone. In the cross, we have perfect justice without any perversion, and a perfect expression of the truth of who God is. That's what's being lifted up in front of us uh, in this passage uh, and in these next several weeks as we draw near to the cross. Um, I don't know about you, but this journey uh, towards the cross is always one uh, that takes something out of me. Um, and so it is good that God feeds us along the way. Uh, it is good that he puts this table uh, in front of us each week uh, as we draw near. Um, before we come to this table, let's pray once more.